All right, we are continuing our Explore God series. There's 950 churches now in Chicago that are participating in this series together, which is exciting to know that the body of Christ is actually unified together around the central reason for our existence, the gospel of Jesus, which is exciting. So I'd like to pray before we start this morning. This morning is going to feel, that the question this morning, is the Bible reliable? It's going to feel a lot more like a college lecture hall a little bit. So you have to stay, you're going to have to stick with me. I'm going to be coming at you with all kinds of stuff, right, to try to give you some answers to this question, but uh, it's a little less inspiring, you know. Uh, but we'll pray that God will keep your attention. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have handed it down to us. Lord, thank you for the impact it's had on our lives. We pray this morning that you would give us new reason to embrace this ancient book and these words that you've given us. In your name we pray, amen. So you know fake news is a big deal these days, right? If you've got a Facebook page, you know that fake news comes across that thing constantly. In fact, my mother and my mother-in-law participate in Facebook, and my mother-in-law is the worst sender of fake news in America. She's constantly sending us these crazy videos and these crazy stories that are just off the charts. And I call her and say, Ma, you realize you're spreading fake news across the country, right? These stories are not true. And she's like, how do you know? They seem really real. I'm like, yeah. Um, you know, I was looking up this week, fake news. It's on Facebook. Some of the most amazing stories of 2018 that were fake news. Here's one of them. Australian scientists say that sharks love jazz music. And it makes them more aggressive and hungry if they hear jazz music. This happens all the time, right? This is crazy stuff. Or it says here that Pope Francis endorsed Donald Trump in the last election. Sure he did. Uh, this, is my, this is one of my favorites. The Canada paid off their national debt in one day after they legalized marijuana. <laughs> this was going all over Facebook. Michael Jordan resigns from the board of Nike and takes his Air Jordan brand with him. Not true. Here's a, here's a great one. Maybe you shared this one. Maybe you saw it. A plane landing in an airport at 737, and it does a full loop-to-loop and then lands. Okay? 14 million people shared that video across America. It was created by a computer genius in a computer lab who could make this plane spin and make it look like it was landing that way. 14 million people shared it all over America. It's crazy. Now, when I was younger, there was no such thing as the Internet, you know, because I'm ancient myself. The only fake news we had was this baby right here. You recognize this? The National Enquirer. I couldn't believe it. I found this uh, this week in a Walgreens. They still have these things. And they, I used to go through the, through the checkout line, and I would look at this thing, and I'd tell my mom, Mom, there's aliens coming to America. The UFOs have been sighted. They're going to take us over. And she'd be like, Jeff, this is fake. It's just, it's just it's not really real. Now, if you read this thing, it's got the craziest stories. I couldn't even read some of these from the stage. They're so crazy, Right? But the National Choir has been known for years for spreading fake news. Now I can tell you something. A lot of people in our world believe these two things are the same. The National Enquirer talking about aliens and supernatural beings coming from other places. And a book that tells stories that are just, wow, out of this world. Right? So people look at the Bible and they go, man, I don't know. Can I really trust this book to be any different than the face, fake news I read on my Facebook page or the fake news I see in the National Choir? What makes this book reliable, right? What makes it true? In fact, I was at breakfast yesterday with a guy I've known for about 15 years, and he asked me what I was preaching about this morning. When I told him the question, it sent him on a rant for 20 minutes. 
about how the Bible just doesn't make sense to him. He's got a million questions. He doesn't like how it's put together. And he, you know, he's a really smart guy, but he just won't embrace that the Bible is true. Now, of all the big questions we've looked at during the Explore God series, this one, I think, may be the most important question. Because if we get this wrong, if this is truly the National Enquirer, then guess what? We're all wasting our time this morning. We might as well just go home and, I don't know, read the National Enquirer, <laughs> right? I mean, if this isn't true, if this isn't real, if this isn't accurate, if this isn't reliable, our whole faith comes crumbling down. So when I went to explore God back two years ago to start doing this whole thing, I told them, I think this should be question number one, not question number six, but they didn't agree with me, so here we are. Week six, doing the, is the Bible reliable? So let's begin our journey this morning by looking at what the Bible says about itself, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 3, you know this verse if you've been around the church a while. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, let's just pause there. God-breathed means this book, just like Adam and Eve, God breathed into Adam and Eve the breath of life. He breathed into people that received Jesus the life of the resurrection. He breathes into this book Life, which means this book, just the book itself, is different than any book on the face of the planet. This book is pulsating with the life of God. No other book will affect you like this book. The the, the doctor of inspiration says that the words on these pages are breathed by God, and they have the power of God pulsating through them. Okay? And because of that, You can be taught, you can be rebuked, you can be corrected, you can be trained in righteousness, you can be equipped for every good work, right? You can be taught how to have every good work in your life through reading this book. Whoa, that's a pretty big claim, right? That's what the Bible says. It continues, Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For the word of God is living and active and full of power. I love that. It is sharper than any two-edged sword penetrating as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, and of both joints and marrow, exposing and judging the very thoughts and attitudes and intentions of the heart. You know the Greek words there? It's like you could be pinned to the mat by the Bible and all of your secrets drawn out. It's, it's, like, a, it's like an x-ray machine that kind of gets in your system and x-rays your person and all the truth about you comes rolling out. It's got the power like nothing else on planet Earth to reveal everything about what's going on deep inside of you and to draw it out. And more importantly than that, it's got the power to allow you to hear God speaking to you directly through the words on these pages. Okay? Wow. That's a powerful book. Living and active. Uh, A pastor and writer, Frederick Beatner, says this about the Bible. The Bible is a book about life and the way it really is. It is a book about people who can at the same time be believing and unbelieving, innocent and guilty, crusaders and crooks, full of hope and full of despair. In other words, it is a book about us. It's also a book about God. If not about the God we believe in, then it's about the God we do not believe in. Now, Barna Research did a study across America, and here's what they found. 85% of households in this country have Bibles in them, usually two to three Bibles. 80% of the people in this country, if researched and asked, believe the Bible is a special book. More special than other books on their shelves. But only 35% of the people in America are actually reading the Bible. Most people have Bibles in their homes, but they're just sitting on shelves in places. If you read the Bible once a week, you're in the top 
20 percentile of Americans in terms of reading the Bible, believe it or not. Okay? So let's uh, dig into this this morning. This question, is the Bible reliable? I mean, should we be spending this much time on the Bible? Okay? And I dug out four questions. Now, believe me, this could be like an hour-long, three-hour-long lecture, right? There's tons of stuff on this, and you should, if you really want to dig deeper, you should go out and dig deeper. Go on the internet. They'll tell you all about it. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but if you should dig some, there's some really great books that have been written about this topic, and you can dig into them yourself. And so I would encourage some further study. But I've, I've kind of taken four uh, kind of angles on this this morning, okay? So you've got to stick with me. First question that I would ask and that people ask is this. Is the Bible accurate? Did this stuff really happen? I mean, in this book, there are people that are swallowed by giant fish and right around their belly for three days. Really? The sun stands still. Uh, you know, a little lunch turns into a giant meal for 15,000 people. Guys walk on water and people are raised from the dead. Really? This is crazy, right? This is crazy stuff. Now, you need to know the Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from every walk of life. Kings, peasants, philosophers, poets, statesmen, farmers, fishermen, written in wartime, peacetime, exile, prisons, and palaces. How in the world do we know if it's true? Now, here's what people always say. They want to say like this. Well, Klein, prove to me, prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead or any of these stories happen scientifically. Prove it to me. What they mean by that is they want me to give them scientific proof for the stories of the Bible. But here's the thing. Nothing else in life, especially history, is proved by science. Science is something that's repeated in a laboratory in a controlled environment over and over again that you can observe. No history is proved this way in the world. How do you prove history? Well, you do use the evidential method. If I wanted to prove to you that Abraham Lincoln was a president of the United States at some point in time, would I be able to use the scientific method? Would I be able to put him in a laboratory and keep reproducing it over and over again? No. No one proves history this way. You use oral testimony, written testimony, and physical testimony. That's how you prove history. Okay? So does the Bible have oral testimony written testimony, and physical testimony. Well, let's look. So here's what Luke says about his uh, undertakings of writing a gospel. He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So there's the oral testimony. Luke gathered the oral testimony of those who had seen this with their eyes and passed it down, right? Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... So Luke's made a careful investigation. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now here's the question. Luke was a doctor. Is this guy really a a good historian? You know, this was a question that's been asked for years. Tons of secular secular, uh, philosophers and secular scholars have asked the question, is Luke really a good theophilus? historian. And for years, they thought Luke was not a good historian. You know why? Because he would use these names that no one could actually find in the history books anywhere but the Bible. Like Quirinius was the governor of Syria. You've heard that one? During Christmas, right? Census was taken. Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, who in that world is this Quirinius guy? No one can figure it out. But in the last 25 years, science, archaeology, physical evidence has proven that Luke was a brilliant historian. They actually found coins with Quirinius, the governor of Syria, on them. 
They found a pillar in a city in Israel with Quirinius, the governor of Syria, written on the bottom. And suddenly people are going, man, this Luke guy, where did he get this stuff? Another thing that Luke did, he called the, the rulers of cities politarchs. And everyone thought, politarch, what does that word even mean? All, all the secular stories were, we never heard of a politarch. Well, 20 years ago, in Thessalonica, they found five references on stones to politarch. They also find 20 more of those in other cities across ancient Greece. So suddenly, historians are going, man, Luke, he knew what he was talking about. This guy got it. Pontius Pilate, for centuries, no one could figure out where this Pontius Pilate gate came from or if he even existed, because only the Bible talked about him. But 25 years ago, in the city of Caesarea, they found a building dedicated by Pontius Pilate to, to Tiberius Caesar in Rome, dated from the exact time when Pontius Pilate would have ruled over Palestine. Now, I could keep going, folks. In the last 25 years, do you realize the first extra-biblical reference to King David was found in a city in northern Israel in the last 25 years? The first one in history, ever, found on a stone, King David. I was in Israel uh, about 10, uh, let's see, I got 10 years ago. And uh, it's gotten, I'm getting so old, I, you know, I just mix all the dates up. Um, but I was in Israel 10 years ago, and we, we stumbled on the city, of, a Philistine city, and there was a famous Jewish archaeologist who was actually digging there that day. We talked with him. He told us, he said, look, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't even read the Bible. I don't even think it's true. I'm not even sure I believe in God. Then he said, but what we found here today in this city, it's really got me thinking. Because this seems to point to the fact that David really existed. This is a secular Jewish archaeologist telling me that this rocked his world when he found this city they did an archaeology with the science of it all, right? So look, folks, you need to know that this book, I believe, is accurate. And I believe if you do the reading and the study, in fact, I've read about tons of people this week who studied the book trying to prove it not to be accurate, only to come to the conclusion it's very accurate. It's very much history. It's very real. Okay? So that's question number one. Evidential method. Like, let's use in the court of law. Okay? Let's go to the second question. How do we know that the Bible that we have today is the same one that was passed on, that was written way back in the day, you know? Wasn't this like the telephone game, right, where they just whispered in the ear, and then it whispered in the next ear, and eventually the thing was completely, you know, crazy? Like Jesus was one day, you know, took a lunch, and then all of a sudden it got blown up into this big story. How do we know that this didn't happen? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a few really uh, misinterpretations about how the Bible was passed on. For instance, let me just tell you this. The Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, right, that part of the Bible was governed by the Jewish scribes. They would actually copy this book. Before there was a printing press, they would sit and copy this thing, right? Now, they had tons of rules for copying a Bible. First of all, you could never copy from a copy. You could only copy from an original, authenticated document. So they took the most original document they had and set it down on the table, and then they would type the original over here. You could only copy uh, in a certain number of columns with a certain number of letters in each column. You had to copy it like this. If you were going to copy scripture, you couldn't just go, you know how it says in the beginning? I can remember in the beginning for sure, can I? I'll just write in the beginning and just move on. No, no. If you're going to copy the scripture, you had to go I, I, N, N, space, space, B, oh, wait, in, the. See, I, I, I messed it up. They wouldn't use me. They wouldn't use me for the job. Okay? 
But that's how they had to do it. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. When they got done with the whole document, they would actually count the letters from the beginning of the document to the middle and from the end of the document to the middle. They knew what the number was of the middle letter. And if it didn't match, if it was off by even one number, they'd take the whole copy, throw it away, and start over. That's how careful they were in copying down the Word of God. So this idea that people just like whispered it to each other and it just was a telephone game is crazy. They were super careful with writing this down. And then, of course, we know the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1948 when a Bedouin shepherd was chucking rocks and heard a hollow sound and he found these scrolls and he brought them to Jerusalem and eventually sold them for lots of money. I think a shopkeeper there bought them and the Archaeological Society of Israel had to go and get them and retrieve them, right? But those Dead Sea Scrolls showed, it narrowed the gap between the oldest documents we had of the Old Testament. It took it down a thousand years, all the way back to about zero A.D., and the book of Isaiah that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls is 96 to 97% the same as the one you're holding in your Bible that you read today. And you say, wait a minute, what's the difference? Well, there's only a few little textual differences, and they're very insignificant. They don't have any effect on the meaning of the book of Isaiah. So the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrate that the Bible was being passed down, the one we have, in the same way over and over and over and over again, right? All right, so that's another one. There's one last thing we should look at in this because one of the two of the most important factors of determining the reliability of a historical document is the number of manuscript copies in existence and the time between when it was first written and the oldest existing copy. Now, that's hard to understand, so I'm going to put a chart up on the screen. Okay? So let's say, let's say take Caesar. Caesar wrote his stuff in 100 to 44 B.C., the earliest copy we have in existence today is from 900 A.D. That's a span of 1,000 years. There's only 10 of those copies existing in the world. Okay? Does anyone ever question whether Caesar's documents are true, accurate, reliable? No. Okay? Aristotle wrote his stuff from 384 to 322 B.C. The earliest copy we have is from 1100 A.D. That's 1,400-year difference, and there's only five of those in the world. The New Testament... I can keep going. There's a bunch of these. But the New Testament happened, written between 40 and 100 A.D., earliest copies from 60 to 125 A.D., roughly a 25-year you know, 25 year to 50-year span. And there's 24,000-plus original documents in existence across the world that you can look at with your own eyes. Okay? This book is the most, the most literally supported ancient work in the world. By far. The nearest one is Homer's Iliad, which there's 500 copies of, and the earliest copies are 500 years pl- past the original document. Okay? I want you to give you that. I think that's significant. This book is accurate. This book is reliably passed down, has been carefully preserved from the original copies. Okay? You still with me? All right, here we go. Question number three. What about all the prophecy in the Bible? This prophecy stuff. Do you remember, uh, some of you older people remember, you remember this person, Gene Dixon? Gene Dixon was regularly in the Inquirer, right? You know why she was there? You know why Gene Dixon became? Gene Dixon was a psychic, self-proclaimed psychic. She made one accurate prediction in her life. One. You know what it was? She read Nostradamus' writings from 1555, and she predicted that John F. Kennedy would be assassinated. And when she got that right, the whole world thought, oh my goodness, this woman is amazing. And she appeared in every 
newspaper, every magazine all over the world predicting future events. She never got anything else right the rest of her life. Seriously, you can read it. She missed it all the rest. Didn't matter. She got one right, and she became a super superstar of predicting the future. Really? You know the prophecy in this book? Oh, my goodness. There are 60 prophecies written over hundreds of years about the coming of Jesus into the world. In fact, this book goes so far to even give us the actual exact address and date of his coming. In Bethlehem, in Judea, in a miraculous way, born to a virgin. It goes on and on. I can tell you, that, you know, you've, you've, you've read these, right? If, if I had time, I'd take it to the book of Daniel and show you how I could trace the dates to 27 AD when Jesus began his ministry and started walking around the earth. From the prophecies in the Old Testament. That's how accurate it is. Now, there's this mathematician, Peter Stoner, who did a uh, study of the probability of prophecy coming true in one person. So he sat down with his mathematical mind and figured out what's the probability of even eight of these prophecies coming true in one person, Jesus Christ. And when he did the math, figuring out the 88 billion people that have lived since those prophecies were made and all the different, I don't understand the calculations, but he came up with this number. He said that the chances for this to be uh, eight prophecies to come down to one person was one in 10 to the 17th power. So let me show you what that number looks like. One in that many chances, whatever that number is. I'm not going to even try to do it. I don't know if it's a gazillion, gazillion, trillion, I don't know. Um, that's the chances of eight prophecies coming true in one person. Now, he, he went further in his book that he wrote on this. He said, uh, to give you an idea of how this number is, if you took silver dollars and covered the state of Texas in silver dollars, stacked them up two feet deep, so the whole state of Texas is covered in silver dollars, and you marked one silver dollar, and then mixed up the silver dollars in a big pile, blindfolded a man, and turned him loose to find that one silver dollar. That's the same probability you'd have of having eight prophecies come true in one person, Jesus Christ, that were written over hundreds of years. Whoa. Does it give you a woe? I don't hear any woes. I get, I get a woe from that. Yeah. I mean, that's a woe to me. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's unbelievable. That's crazy. And he said for 60 prophecies to become true in one person, 60, we'd have to add 157 zeros to this number. One in 157 to the 10th power, whoa. Whoa. But when we read the, the New Testament, that's exactly what happened. 60 prophecies all come true in this one person, in this one place, in this time. That's amazing. Gene Dixon's got nothing on the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, I just want you to know, uh, if I keep going here, I can keep going for a while, but I'm going to tell you this. Jesus actually believed this book. He quoted it multiple times. When he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, he said, man cannot live by bread alone or shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the book of Deuteronomy. When he does his sermon on the mount, he quotes the Ten Commandments over and over again. He says, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say, if you even look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Do you know that Jesus believed in Jonah? He believed Jonah was a real person. You don't believe me? Check this out. A wicked and adulterous generation, this is Jesus talking, ask for a sign. None will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. First, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. 
So the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Next slide. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus believed that Jonah was real. He believed it actually happened. I'm going to tell you, I do too. I know it's crazy to think of a guy riding around a fish for three days, but, and then getting barfed up on the beach, but it really happened. Jesus also talked about Adam and Eve. Uh, he actually quoted Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Capernaum and said, Today, this scripture is being fulfilled right in front of you. I am the word of God standing here in the flesh. Think about that. That's the book of John, right? The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The words of God, the prophecies of God become flesh in this one person, Jesus. And even though the probability is crazy, it becomes flesh. Now, I could go on and on. I could keep going. Giving you reasons why the Bible is reliable, why I believe it's reliable. Um, they talk, the Bible writers talked about the power of the Scripture. So maybe the most uh, important argument I can give you today is the argument of a life change because of the Bible. So I know this young man, his name is Xander. Uh, he lives out in Wheaton. He went to Wheaton College for four years. He's a worship leader in a church out in Wheaton that I happen to have planted. Um, and um, Xander's got a great story. Xander grew up in a house where his parents didn't go to church, didn't believe in God. So Xander grew up not going to church, not believing in God. In fact, he told me that it was even crazier because he said, at my house, we had Bibles around because my parents had grown up like Lutheran or something. And we had Bibles around, but we would just take them out and read them occasionally. We'd just make fun of the stories in there. You know, like the sun standing still. I mean, that's ridiculous. How could that happen? Or, you know, like all these people being fed by one lunch or, you know, guys walking around. I mean, we just make fun of these stories. He said then, when he became a sophomore in high school, his English teacher at the public school gave him this assignment. Write a paper, Xander, telling him what the meaning of life is. Well, he was like, oh, man, I have no idea. Went home and started thinking about this. And so he decided to pick up the Bible on his shelf and start to read it. And he read it from the beginning to the end, literally the whole thing. Sophomore in high school, searching for the meaning of life. He said that the first time he read it, he would take it down to his parents. He would show them the ridiculous stories in here, and they would laugh together about these stories. When he couldn't find his answers in the Bible, he turned to the Quran, to Hinduism, to Buddhism, to a variety of other philosophies, never finding the answer to the meaning of life. So he wrote his teacher a paper saying, I don't know the meaning of life, I can't figure out what it is, and gave her all the reasons why. About six months later, Xander became friends with a young man whose dad was a pastor in Minnesota. This pastor had a church there, and after six months of becoming friends with this young man, Xander was invited by his friend to go to church. He said, boy, I've never been to church. I don't know what church is all about, but because I like you and I know you like me and because we're friends, I'll go with you to church. He said the first Sunday he was there, this guy's dad was up on stage and was talking to the congregation about this guy, Abba, this God who was Abba, Daddy, Father. He said it blew his mind. He had never heard it put that way before. He had never heard anyone refer to God as Daddy. He said, man, if God's my Daddy, what does that mean? And he went home with this question in his mind about the meaning of life and this whole mind-blowing concept of God as a Daddy. Three days into the week, he picked his Bible back up off the shelf. This time he started in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. He started to read. He told me by the time I got to the book of John, my Bible was on my bed, I was on my knees in my room giving my life to Jesus. 
by myself in my room with just this. No preacher, no person with them, no one to explain, just this. I love that story. I love that story. Xander eventually ended up at Wheaton College. I'll, it's another whole story, but John Piper ended up filling out his recommendation. It's hilarious how that happened, but I'll share that with some other time. Uh, so well, let's, let's, let's keep going back here. Look what the Bible says about itself again. For you have been born again. This is Xander. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and active, enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Look at Proverbs. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your ear to understanding, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I can tell you this, folks. Um, I love the Bible. So you may think I'm a nut job, but I love the Bible. I've spent a long time studying it and reading it. I try to read it every day if I can. And I try to read it with the hope that God is going to speak to me through the words in these pages. And I can tell you what, rarely does he disappoint. Usually, he speaks to me in some way. Sometimes I get pinned to the mat and he reveals something that's completely messed up in me and I gotta get fixed. Sometimes I get lifted to new heights. Sometimes I get to see a world, an invisible world that exists behind here that I don't normally see with my eyes. But the Bible reveals it to me. Right? It's amazing. You get to meet people that are just like you. People that are afraid and that are insecure and that mess up and that stumble and that fall, that wrestle with God. I love that. It's a great book. So here's the thing. Most people in our culture have put the Bible away. It sits in our coffee table in our family room, right? There's, there it is. We walk by it every day. Even Christians in churches aren't really reading this book anymore. Okay? So my encouragement for you today is, why don't you go home and try to read it? Pick it up. So in your bulletins, I put a 50-day reading guide. Okay, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't see it. If you didn't see it, you can check it out. It's 50 days of going through the story of God. So this book is a story from beginning to end. It's one consistent, constant story. So I thought, why don't we all do this together? We could all read this book together and see what we find. And we start in the New Testament on day one, and we work our way through. Now, here's the important thing about this. A lot of Bible reading plans, it's like, you know, people want to get through those things, to get through the Bible as fast as we can. Don't try to get through the Bible. Let the Bible get through to you. Make sense? So if you have to take a little longer than one day to read a chapter, fine. It doesn't matter if it takes 50 days or 500 days. The important thing is you get through it, and the Bible gets through to you, right? And you start to hear the word of the Lord speak to you. So if you've never read the Bible before, I would, I would sort of challenge you this morning to pick this up and try it. It's life-transforming. It's, it's really got some amazing stories, right? Just try to read it. Check it out. See what it says. See if God speaks to you. See if... See if you hear something you haven't heard before and be open to the mystery that you might find there because there's a lot of mystery there, okay? So can we go on this journey together as a church? Maybe take those 50-day Bible reading guides. When I see you along the way, I'll ask you where you're at in the story of God and, and you know, what you're finding out, what God's speaking to your life, okay? All right, good. Let's pray. Let's pray.
Jesus, again, thank you for this book. God the Father, thank you for speaking to us. You could have just left us down here and been totally separated, but instead, Lord, you continue to pour out your words on the earth, and we get to receive those, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that today um, you will have maybe helped us to understand how amazing this book is. And, Lord, most of all, I pray that we pick it up this week and read it. Give us the motivation of your spirit to do so. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.